0: This morning's scripture reading comes from the book of Joshua, chapter 13, verses 1 to 7. This passage can be found in your pew Bible on page 160. Joshua 13, verses 1 to 7. When Joshua had grown old, the Lord said to him, You are now very old, and there are still very large areas of land to be taken over. This is the land that remains, all the regions of the Philistines and Gesherites, from the Shehor River on the east of Egypt to the territory of Ekron on the north. All of it counted as Canaanite, though held by the five Philistine rulers in Gaza Ashdod, Ashkelon, Gath, and Ekron. The territory of the Avites on the south, all the land of the Canaanites, from era of the Sidonians as far as Aphek and the border of the Amorites, the area of Biblos and all Lebanon to the east, from Baal Gad below Mount Hermon to Lebo Hamath. As for all the inhabitants of the mountain regions from Lebanon to Misrafath Maim, that is, all the Sidonians, I myself will drive them out before the Israelites. Be sure to allocate this land to Israel for an inheritance as I have instructed you, and divide it as an inheritance among the nine tribes and half of the tribe of Manasseh. This is the word of God.
1: A certain parcel of land, with the buildings thereon, situated in Acton, Middlesex County, Massachusetts, being shown as Lot 39 on a plan entitled Plan of Part of Colonial Acres, Acton, Mass., dated June second, nineteen 1956, recorded with the Middlesex South District deeds at the end of Book 8784, being bounded and described as follows, southeasterly, By Marion Road, as shown on said plan, 151 and no 100ths. Northwesterly, by Lot 40, as shown on said plan, 139 and 96 100ths. Northeasterly, by Lot 38, as shown on said plan, 151 and no 100ths. Southeasterly, by Lot 15, as shown on said plan, 139 and ninety hundreds feet containing th- 20,044 square feet according to said plan. Mm-hmm. Shall I continue? Mm-hmm. <laughs> now here's the thing. Joshua continued not just in these seven verses but for 10 or 12 chapters. And you gotta think. What do we do with this? I mean, in theory, you know, Brian, the worship leader this morning, started out with a psalm and says, Lord, I treasure your precepts. I, I live by your word. But sometimes it's not immediately obvious what his word would have to say to us. So this information I read off to you, you know, basically the deed to my, it comes from the deed to my house. Now, it's important under some circumstances, You know, when it was part of the contract when we signed to to buy the house, they, they gave us all that specifics. But there's not very many times where it's important, unless we're buying or selling a house. As it happens in our particular neighborhood, my wife likes to keep a nice lawn. Me, I only care about the resale value of the house. The lawn is purely functional. But Irene likes to keep a nice lawn. But we have a problem. The guys to the left of us and the family to the right of us, they don't care. They've actually found out if you let the weeds take over, you don't need to mow. Because there's certain kind of weeds in our neighborhood, at least, they only grow to be a couple inches tall and you just leave them. Maybe once or twice a season they can just mow and then they'll be done with it. But if we keep a nice lawn, we've got to mow every week. Now, how do we keep a nice lawn if our neighbors to the left and right don't? So I'm thinking about laying down a turf strip between us, you know, some kind of mulch between us so their weeds don't come into our lawn so it's not so hard on my wife trying to keep the lawn up. Uh, The trouble is, I don't know where the boundaries are. And I can't just dig up a section of the lawn and lay down turf or lay down, you know, uh, mulch unless I... I got to pay some guy $1,500 to tell me exactly where the lines are. Now... You know, it doesn't really matter where the lines are. For the most part, we don't care. Now, my neighbor, actually, when she was renovating, because she was adding, an addition to her house, the people behind us, they actually had to pay a guy $1,500 to tell them where their boundaries are because they have to keep so far from the boundary, and, and the architect needed the information. They paid a guy. And then she comes and tells me that, well, her land extends actually to what I thought was my yard. And then we got these, we got a fence in the backyard, somebody put there by a previous owner, we got a fence, we got major rocks, and she says, well, actually her land comes to our side of the rocks, not to her, you know, maybe we shouldn't be, maybe. We don't really care about this kind of stuff for the most part. We don't pay much attention to it. Unless we're buying or selling, unless we're having quarrels with our neighbor, we don't care where the property markers are. And yet we read in Joshua chapter 13, Uh, This is the land that remains, all the regions of the Philistines and the Gersherites, and from the Sihor River on the east of Egypt to the territory of Ekron on the north, and all of it counted as Canaanite, though held by the five Philistine rulers in Gaza and Ashdod and Ashkelon and Gath and Ekron, the territory of Avites on the south and all the land of the Canaanites, from Arar, the Sinians, as far as Aphek and the border with the Amorites, the area of Biblos and all Lebanon to the east and so forth and so forth for about 13 chapters. Now, if this is your first time here, you may not realize that it's the tradition or practice of this church to preach through the Bible from the beginning of a book to the end. Well, we preached the first half of Joshua last year at this time and now the second half of Joshua. And a lot of it is about land boundaries. And you think, what are we going to do? So take a look at Joshua chapter... That was just Joshua chapter 13 I read to you. But take a look at Joshua chapter 13. And the following. Let me show you how far this covers throughout Joshua. That's page 160 in your pew Bible. So notice, halfway down page 160, what do you read? Division of the land east of the Jordan. So the first thing we're going to read about is how the land east of the Jordan was divided. And then in verse... 15, this is the property that Reuben's family got clan by clan. And then in chapter 13, then we read about Gad and the property they got clan by clan. And then in chapter 14, now that we've covered east of the Jordan, now we cover west of the Jordan. We read about the land given to Caleb. And then in 15, the land given to Judah. And then in 16, the land for Ephraim and Manasseh. And then in 18, the division of the rest of the land starting with Simeon. Oh no, starting with Benjamin, and then Simeon, and then Zebulun, and then Issachar, and then Asher, and then Naphtali, then Dan, and then Joshua. Then in chapter 20, the cities of refuge for people who don't have land that they can go to. And then in chapter 21, what's the provision for the Levites who don't get land? The whole book is about land distribution and land boundaries. And it's not just random. It's very carefully organized. You've got a pattern of A, B, A prime or A, B, C, B prime, A prime where he did very careful literary organization as he describes some land and moves on geographically or moves on territorially and then moves his way back. Very carefully organized. What do we to make of this? You know, it's fine to say in general, you know, we value the Bible. But Joshua chapter, the second half of Joshua, is really a challenge. Now, as it happens, I'll be on mini-sabbatical in July and August. And I actually had planned. I actually tried to start my sabbatical in June, which would have been great because this would have been the first Sunday and I could have left this to Pastor David to work with. But because I'm going sabbatical, then Pastor David and seminary and uh, Jeff and I have been working together every week. We've been meeting together for, I don't know, 10 or 12 weeks, going through every chapter of Joshua, saying, you know, you, you, you take a first look at this. And you think, how are we going to preach a 10-week or 11-week sermon series through this? Not only how, but why would we? It's one thing to say all Scripture is inspired by God, which the New Testament claims and is useful, profitable, for teaching, for character development. But in practice, how do we do it? You know, it's not like I'm going to invite all of you to bring in your land deeds to your property, you who own homes, and then we're going to sit together over the next 10 or 11 weeks and read these things and say, praise you Jesus, and let's go out and live like this. So why did Joshua do that? If we wouldn't do it, what's going on here? If God is speaking through scripture, how is he speaking through this? What's he saying? Well, there is an answer. We're catching in the middle. of We've got all this focus on land. Let me show you, first of all, the focus on land. You know, we saw it all throughout the the second half of Joshua. Take a look at this passage. Verse 1, chapter 13, verse 1. When Joshua had grown old, the Lord said to him, You are now very old. Oh, isn't that helpful? Not only does the family member say it to him, God says it to him. You are now very old, and there are still large areas of land to be taken over. And then verses 2 to 6 describes the particular land. And then verse 7, verse 6b to 7, Be sure to allocate this land all of Joshua, this passage and all of Joshua is preoccupied with land. Why? And what difference does it make to us who don't live in that land? Maybe it makes a difference to the Palestinians and the Israelis, but what difference does it make to us? What is God saying to us through this? Let me not just tell you, let me show you. Because we're taking the story in midstream. You know, Joshua, the Bible doesn't start here. We're picking up the story in midstream. So let me show you from Scripture how it fits in and how it's relevant to us. Turn back to uh, to Genesis chapter 12. It's page 8 in your pew Bible. Genesis chapter 12. This is where the story doesn't begin, but this is where a major new development in the story begins. Joshua is a continuation Genesis 12. Genesis chapter 12, it's on page 8. This is the story of Abraham and God comes to Abraham. At that point he was called Abram. Chapter 12, Genesis chapter 12 verse 1, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household. He tells Abraham to migrate. Go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. And I will bless you. I will make your name great. And you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now this same interaction, this same uh, confrontation between God and Abraham is repeated again in Genesis 15 and repeated again in Genesis 17. And all three of them have basically the same three pieces. All three of these encounters with God, same three pieces, same three promises. Notice the promises. Verse 1, go to the land I will show you. Verse 2, I will make you into a great nation. Verse 3, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Three promises to Abraham. God is going to give him land. God is going to give him descendants. And God is going to make him a blessing to all peoples. Descendants, land, and a blessing to the nations. The entirety of the Old Testament, from beginning to end, and the entirety of the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, it's all one story. It's all the story of this promise. God made a promise to Abraham. I'm going to give you descendants, I'm going to give you land, and I'm going to make you a blessing to the nations. The whole of the Bible, from beginning to end, is just one long, you could say, novel or historical account. One long story about the, God's fulfillment of this promise. I'm going to give you descendants. Abraham was childless. I'm going to give you land. Abraham was a nomad. I'm going to make you a blessing to the nations. Uh, Abraham was obscure. And the whole Bible tells this one story about how God did it. And Joshua puts us in the middle of that story. Now, why this story? Why Abraham? There's a prequel to this movie, to this storyline. And the prequel comes in Genesis 1-3. to We don't have to turn there, but just remember the story. I'll remind you of the details. Remember that when God created the earth. What did he say to the humans, Adam and Eve? Chapter 1, verse 28. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Basically, God made them three promises or God gave them three blessings. The blessings of descendants. They were to be fruitful and increase in number. The blessing of land and a place He gave them Eden, and the blessing, the promise that they would be a blessing to the nations. Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. This was God's original intention for human beings. That they would have many descendants. That they would have a place, Eden and the whole earth that God created for us. And that they would be a blessing to all the nations. And then in Genesis 3, the fall comes in. And what happens after the fall? God's punishment on Adam and Eve for the fall. There was a punishment related to the promise of descendants. What did he say to Eve? Now, because of your sin, because of the fall, when you bear give birth to descendants, I will greatly increase your pain in childbirth. The promise to descendants wasn't taken away. The promise of descendants was not taken away, but there was a a complication, a a pain associated with it, an impediment to it. What happened to the promise of land or place? They were thrown out of Eden to wander. What happened to the promise of blessing to the nations? We see by Genesis 11, at the Tower of Babel, the nations are dispersed. So we see that God's original plan in Genesis 1 was disrupted. And this is really the the foundation to the story. Abraham is only stage two in this drama. The foundation to the story is this. God intended a certain life for us. It was a life, of a a long life, many children, a happy life, a, a life in a secure place. A life where the, 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 his blessing would go over the whole earth. It was to be a blessing of descendants and, and land. and A blessing to the whole earth. And then the fall came in and disrupted that. And so basically, God reboots. And in the Abraham story, we have version 2.0. Instead of the whole earth, now he's going to work with one clan, one family. But still he promises them descendants. And he promises them land. And then through them, he'll recover his blessing to the whole, world, to the whole earth. And then this storyline from Genesis goes all the way through to the end of the Bible. Remember what happens at the end of the book of Revelation? John looks up and has a vision of the end of time. And he has a vision Of heaven, heaven coming down to earth. And what is his vision? He sees a great multitude of people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And he sees Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, coming down from heaven, coming down to earth. What is John seeing in Revelation? He's seeing the fulfillment. He's seeing the last stage in the storyline. Eden is restored. He's seeing descendants, a multitude. He's seeing the blessing to the nations, people from every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation. He sees a place. Heaven descends to earth. He sees the fulfillment of God's storyline, the fulfillment of God's purposes for the nation. This is the storyline that runs from Genesis chapter 1 all the way to Revelation, the end of Revelation chapter 22 and any time we step into the bible we step into some certain place on that storyline so when we come to joshua we come to a certain place in that storyline notice by the time we come to joshua the first promise has been fulfilled the first promise to abraham the promise of descendants And we see in the book of Exodus that the the book of Genesis is all occupied with the promise that that Abraham would have descendants. And then we read in Exodus chapter 1, we read this, Exodus chapter 1. Remember, Israel is in Egypt. And these are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, and they named 12 patriarchs. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were fruitful. And they multiplied greatly. They became exceedingly numerous so that the land was filled with them. Do you see what what Exodus says? The second book of the Bible, what it says is God's first promise has been fulfilled. God's promise of children to Abraham. God's promise that Abraham will become the father of many nations. At least he's become the father of one nation. All it took was the book of Genesis. And God had fulfilled that first promise. And now in Joshua, God turns to the second promise. He promised them land. And now he's going to give them land. And that's what Joshua is all about. We're in the middle of Joshua. They've gone into the land. They've conquered some of the land. And God says, okay, disperse the land amongst the different tribes. What this is, the book of Joshua is this. The point of the book of Joshua. God has fulfilled his promise. He fulfilled the promise of many people, many descendants. And now he's fulfilling the promise of land. God is giving them land. What do we make of all of this? What does it have to say to us? I would say that there's two lessons we pull from it, and more in detail. The first is this. As our worship leader led... You know, as you read from Scripture, from Psalms. God speaks to us through His Word. Now, this may not be the way we want Him to speak to us today. I mean, let's face it, okay? We'd rather He speak to us through a video, a movie, right? It's a whole lot easier to to watch a movie than it is to read a book. Now, if He's going to speak to us through words rather than images, we'd rather He speak to us through Twitter, because then all we got is 140 characters, not, you know, 400 pages. Or, you know, an emotional drama that we could watch and get caught up in. Or maybe motivational talks, you know, Tony Robbins kind of thing. That might be how we'd prefer him to speak to us. But he's chosen to speak to us through scripture through the history of Israel. It's not directly to us or about us. It's about Israel. It's to Israel. And so it's a bit more work. We've got to say, what was God saying to them? What was their situation? What was God saying to them in that situation? And then, how do we apply that to us today? It's a bit more work. So if we want to hear God speak... You know, occasionally he may speak to us directly, either through his impressions or through dreams or through visions, but that kind of thing is really highly unreliable. I come from a tradition that that really tried to cater to that and and practice that. And God said some very strange things, or people have trouble with their hearing. The, The most reliable source for hearing from God is Scripture. And if we're going to hear from God through Scripture, it's going to take a little bit of effort, because God has chosen to speak this way. On the flip side of it, though, let me say two positives about it. One is the marvel that God has chosen to speak to us. That he hasn't left us in darkness, feeling our way forward, trying to figure out who he is. I think all of us could attest there were times in our lives when we didn't care about God. And yet he didn't just write us off. He chose to speak to us. So if he didn't do it exactly in the way that's most natural for us today to listen, well maybe that's okay. Because God, the infinite, omnipotent God, He's taking the effort to communicate. And yeah, maybe it takes a little bit of work. But this is the great Almighty God who wants to talk to us, who wants to tell us about Himself, who wants to tell us about us. Maybe, even if he d- tells us in a way that's not all entirely convenient for us, maybe, maybe it's worth the e- little extra work. A- and the other justification for it, I would say, is this. Yesterday, in the sanctuary, Andrew and Charlene were married, and, and I noticed they're here today, and it's supposed to be the, um, so we, we welcome them, you know, it's supposed to be the presider who acknowledges them, but I see them, and it fits them in with my point anyway, so I draw attention to them. <laughs> Yeah, I feel, we're, 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 we're going to be uncomfortable unless we clap. So let's clap. Go, go, clap! <laughs> now, just in case some of you, you know, those of you who are going to be getting married soon, uh, you know, I don't, I don't want you to feel pressured by their example to come to church the day after you get married. We don't require it. Uh, We do give a discount on facilities rental, if you do, but we don't require it. And, you know, after their wedding yesterday, it occurred to me that we have three couples getting married this year, uh, this year and next year, three couples that are enslaved to get married. All of them came from youth ministry. So if you're single and don't want to be, you know which ministry you should join. All right, moving on. <laughs> w- w- look at this. I can remember my, you know, as a kid. What would I? The reason I'm being able to share into this. A- as a kid, what would I ask my parents about? You probably asked your parents about it. How did you meet? You look at the wedding photos together. Now I tell you this. I, I'm really surprised because my father brought me up really strict, and I was really quiet and conservative. You know, my parents met on a Ferris wheel. At a, at a town fair. You know, and my father and his buddy were in one seat and my mother and her friend were in the other seat and, uh, you know, and my mother and her friend had popcorn and my father and his buddy would say, hey, call, girls, throw us some popcorn and they threw popcorn. <laughs> flirting, boy, flirting. <laughs> and he was only 16 and my mother was 14 and my father was so bald and had I lived by that story, I might not. I had to be almost 30 before I got married. But anyway, I'm glad I waited. <laughs> But the point is this, what do kids want to hear? They don't want to hear eight principles about marriage. They want to hear how their parents met. They want to hear how their parents dated. They want to hear about how their parents got married. They want to see the videos. They want to look at the photos. We want story. Well, scripture gives us story. And it's a long story. So, so not all of it's immediately accessible to us. It's a long story. But it's our story. I'll show you in a moment. This is not about Israel and the land of Palestine and the land of Canaan. This is not about some country thousands of miles away and, and some people that we have no bond with. We were actually adopted into this story. This is our story. These are our forefathers. And, and so, you know, we don't hear, you know, vague general principles here in Scripture. What we hear is people, our forefathers, trying to follow their God, trying to connect with Him, trying to understand Him. You no, know, we hear is something even more important. We hear about God trying to reach out to our forefathers, stubborn and rebellious as they were, difficult and resistant. This is our story, our family history here. And this is God trying to reach people like us, People that we're spiritually connected with, if not genetically. This is our family history and God reaching out to people like us. And we can see concretely, not just theoretically, we see by the way they lived and the mistakes they made and how God dealt with them in in their good times and in their bad. We can see concretely what it looks like for us to follow God, for him to try to reach us. This is the story we hear in Scripture. A story lived out in the flesh, not just some abstract novel, but historic reality, our family. So this is why we read Joshua. Not just because God says to, but because we learn something about our family and ourselves by reading Joshua. And finally, let me sketch out what I think is the relevance of Joshua to us, what we will focus on over the next few weeks. How is Joshua relevant to us? First of all, how we read it. Remember, there were three promises to Abraham. Genesis took only one, cha- one book to finish one promise. Many descendants. By the time Genesis is over, well, a few hundred years later, they're in Egypt, beginning of Exodus, The beginning of the second book, they're in Egypt, there's so many of them that the Egyptians are just intimidated. Got to get rid of these people. There's too many of them. God fulfilled that promise. And then Joshua begins the second phase, the promise of land. Well, it began in Numbers, but it started to begin in Numbers, but it got short-circuited. It begins in Joshua. And that promise doesn't take just one book. The promise in Joshua takes all the way to the end of the Old Testament. And even beyond that, even in Jesus' time, the promise had not yet finally been completely reliably been fulfilled the promise was fulfilled once within a few hundred years and then israel rebelled against god and god said look stop it and they, they wouldn't listen finally god said, if you don't stop i'm going to throw you out of land and they wouldn't listen so god threw half of them out of the land and the other half still wouldn't listen so god threw them out of the land and by the time we get to the old testament they're still struggling with the land they came back to the land but they're living in poverty they're a small little country surrounded by superpowers. And even in Jesus' day, the land is not their own. They're in the land, but the Romans are occupying it. So for over 1,500 years, they struggled with their second promise. Now we, we're not Jewish, most of us. We're part of the third promise. We're the blessing to the nations. The gospel came through Israel. And then in the New Testament, we read how the gospel spreads. Jesus says to his disciples, Go and make disciples of all nations. We are the part of the third stage. The blessing to the nations is being fulfilled in us and through us. And this is how we learn from Joshua. We see how God worked with people in the second stage. And that God is still the same. We see his character. We see his values. We see what matters to him. We see how he treats people in the second stage. And we can say, okay... You know, we're still his people. We're third stage. But this is still the same God. And he still treats his people the same way. So we'll learn from Joshua, from what happened, what God did in second stage, we'll learn what God does in the third stage. The focus of the second stage was this, to be more specific. The focus of the book of Joshua is God's generosity and his initiative in giving them the land. God brought them into that land, and he fought for them. But the focus of the book of Joshua is the other half. God brought them into the land, and he fought for them. But now the focus in the second half of the book of Joshua is this. Now they have to stand up, and they have to fight with God against the nations for this land. God has done so much. And then the second half of Joshua says, okay, now it's your turn. Throw your weight into this. Engage in this. And that's the overall lesson we need to learn from Joshua over the next 10 or 12 weeks. Because we're in the third phase. And God has started this. God set this in motion. Just like he did with them in the land. So he started. He called his disciples. Go into all the nations. And he gave his spirit to impel his people out into the nations. And we see in the book of Acts. And we see in the New Testament. And we see in church history how the gospel spread from Palestine to Europe to Asia and further abroad. And God says to us, just what he said to them. I've started this. I've initiated it. Now you join in. And we're in the third phase. The gospel going to nations. And God's saying the same thing to us. He said to them, I started this. I initiated it. Now you join in. So we'll look how the book of Joshua, over the next 10 or 12 weeks, we'll look at how the book of Joshua applies to us in the cause of world missions. How it applies to us. How What God did with them in the second stage applies to us in the third stage. As God gave them the land and now he's calling us to go to the nations. And there's a third aspect that we need to take to heart from Joshua. A little bit more sober. Remember I told you first phase, God's promise of descendants, took one Bible book, the book of Genesis. By the time Exodus begins, that, that promise was fulfilled. The second promise, land, that could have been fulfilled as early as Numbers, but his people resisted. So he held them back in the wilderness until they died and a new generation went forward. And that promise of land could have been fulfilled in Joshua. But they weren't diligent. It got partially fulfilled and didn't get fully fulfilled. And it could have been fulfilled in Judges, but they all did what they wanted to do. And it could have been fulfilled in Samuel. It could have been fulfilled in Kings. It could have been fulfilled in Chronicles. It could have been fulfilled in Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. It could have been fulfilled, but it wasn't fulfilled, even Malachi's day. It could have been fulfilled in the Old Testament, but it wasn't. And even in Jesus' day, it's not fulfilled. 1,500 years. It took God, just a few generations, in one Bible book to fulfill the first of his promises. And then he called his people to engage. And 1,500 years passed. And the second promise hadn't been fulfilled. And then about 2,000 years ago, Jesus said, Okay, now it's time for the third promise promise to the nations. And 2,000 years later, that promise still not fulfilled. It doesn't take God 2,000 years to fulfill His promises. It took Him, Genesis, to fulfill the promise that was up to Him entirely. So over the next 10 or 12 weeks, we're going to look at what God said to them in in the second stage of salvation history and, and apply that to what God's saying to us in the third phase of salvation history. But let this be the first lesson we grasp. For some unfathomable reason, it took Israel more than 1,500 years to get the land and they never really got it. And now it's taken the church more than 2,000 years to reach the nations. And still we haven't done it. Let's figure out from their mistakes how we can be part of God's progress in the world that it might not be another 2,000 years before the third phase of God's promises to Abraham are fulfilled. Let's pray together. Father, we we are your people. We hear your call. We pray that you be with us over the next 10 or 12 weeks as we meditate together on how you work through the people in Joshua's day. That we might hear how you want to work through us today. That we might be part of the fulfillment of this third promise. That because of us, It won't take another 2,000 years for this promise to be fulfilled. Be with us, Father. Speak to us through your word. In Jesus' name, amen.